Welcome back to Wheel Adventures. This is episode nine. Where do I go and how do I get there? So I'm going to talk about some issues related to choosing a place to go and explore and what to uh, use to get there and considerations for for uh, planning that trip. So I think starting out, we'll just look at, well, how much time do you have? You know, that could be anywhere from a weekend trip, overnight trip. People that work nine to five, Monday through Friday jobs, they can only get away on weekends or holidays. So you've got that to consider uh, is, you know, if you can get away on a two-week vacation, you can plan for that. But you want to think ahead unless you enjoy doing spur-of-the-moment sort of travel where you just kind of head in a direction and wing it. That can be great, and it can also be less than satisfying, actually. And it can go all the way from weekend travel to an open-ended around-the-world trip where you're just living in the vehicle. You're going from Alaska to Terra del Fuego or across Siberia or you name it. So first thing to consider is how much time do I have to do this route? And considering the mileage of the route, what that might be, uh, you need to be realistic about how far you're able to go or willing to go. So that's another another factor involved. Um, another thing to consider when you're determining what route you want to follow is you got to consider, you know, what the vehicle's capability is. You know, if you have a Jeep Wrangler or a, a very capable, any kind of really capable, rock crawlingly capable vehicle, you can uh, have a wider range of choice about where to go and and what you can tackle. And uh, if you're towing a vehicle, there are some overlanding trailers, for example, that are incredibly capable. It can pretty much go wherever you would take your vehicle solo. And then it goes all the way to, you know, you have these Black Series HQ up to, God, I don't know how big they make them. I think uh, the biggest I've seen is an HQ-21. That's a 21-foot behemoth behind you that you would probably be less than uh, happy taking it on a really technical trail that's really rocky, off-camber, rutted, whatever. Your your option for backing out of something is, uh, is reduced. It was always one of my considerations when we were traveling with the Hummer H3, and we were pulling the Crux trailer, which is a really capable trailer. My big fear was running into a situation like a, you know, even a non-technical shelf road that had a lot of switchbacks and uh, was narrow, and then running into a situation where the road was washed out, where there was a 10-ton boulder across the road that wasn't we weren't able to get around, and uh, or for that matter you know running into an other vehicles coming down or going up and having to back out of a situation it's it's just a long way when you have to back up on a narrow shelf road with a cliff on one side and a and a drop off on the other so that's something to consider also is is your terrain um, your capabilities I have a tendency to be slightly more conservative with our van, our E350 sportsmobile uh, van. It's been lifted. I have yet to hit more than just a mild dab on the rear bumper when we went through some deep arroyos in Arizona. Um, That only happened once or twice. So, But I am careful to have Renge my wife's spot for us when it does look off camber or chunky where we might hit something, especially considering that we have a propane tank that doesn't hang low, but it is 
underneath about midsection uh, for breakover. Need to keep an eye on that. And uh, another thing to consider when you're talking about terrain is how much of a challenging terrain do you want to tackle based on your driving skills, um, your driving experience, your recovery knowledge and experience is another thing. Um, you know, more and more, I just really enjoy fairly mellow trips. Um, soft roading is one term that has been coined for people that use like Subarus and, and Jeep renegades and so forth. Um, and I do run into more technical situations just as a matter of course, because we're out in the middle of nowhere and a lot of these roads are, just aren't maintained. I don't go looking for it because my goal is to is to have a stress-free, relaxing time and enjoy the scenery and explore new places rather than challenging the vehicle and myself. Um, I do enjoy it when it happens, but I don't I don't want to do a lot of it. It gets it gets a bit much. So that's up to each person. That's an individual value um, that you're going to want to fulfill or not. Uh, but what I was going to say is if you're traveling with somebody else, a child or um, a spouse that may be less enthusiastic about getting into something really challenging, um, if you want to continue traveling with that person, it's a good idea that to, uh, you know, you might want to uh, tone it down a little bit and not scare them or beat them to death in the passenger seat because as my wife has said many times, that when you're driving and you have a steering wheel to hang on to, you're less prone to feeling uncomfortable from really getting thrown around than you are being a passenger. Another thing to consider, fuel range. The route that you're you're doing that you have decided on if you, you're looking ahead and you're not just winging it and spontaneously following roads as they as you come to them and go hey let's go down and explore this so if you're following a, an intended route and you pretty much know the mileage between where you'll be able to resupply primarily primarily for food uh no no for food for the vehicle uh fuel uh food is kind of secondary you know you usually carry enough food for for pretty long distances you can probably carry food and water for longer distances than the range of the the fuel range of the vehicle is going to be able to to accommodate so that's something to consider is where how far is it between fuel stops and what's the practical miles per gallon that you get in your vehicle when you're traveling off-road and mine will vary quite a bit you know it's uh, when I'm picking my way slowly over terrain or driving through deep sand like we had a lot of on the Camino del Diablo down along the uh, Mexican-Arizona border. Um, the mileage, the, our highway mileage for the, the van, the diesel van, lingers in this 16 to 17 mile per gallon range, but when we were going through deep sand, it drops to, you know, like 10 or 12 so you have to accommodate that so you don't want to get stuck out. Uh, another good thing to consider just as a, as a backup is uh, generally I'll, I'll carry a spare five-gallon fuel can for, uh, for the extra diesel if we're kind of pushing the limit. Uh, just gives you a little bit of uh, margin of error uh, dealing with that. Another thing to consider is the time of year. Generally, I will not go someplace where it's going to be snow-packed roads. It, uh, that's always frustrating. I mean, yeah, it can be fun to challenge yourself, see how much snow you can get through, but uh, getting stuck and having once again to back up out on a route on your in-track, even getting turned around can be a challenge sometimes, especially if you're pulling a trailer. So I have a tendency to to uh, watch the weather. Um, this summer has been hot and we had a spell of a lot of smoke and this is one of the reasons why uh, my big excuse here why I haven't posted anything 
for a while since that third uh, episode that we did from the, uh, it was episode eight, our last episode, but the third thing we did on the recordings I did of conversations at the Pacific Northwest Overland Expo, the 2022 Expo. So yeah, we haven't done much and we've been engaging a lot of family stuff and uh, we went to the coast. I've gone to the coast now twice and um, we didn't do any what I would consider really overlanding. We were just on paved roads, but we really wanted to experience the coast in the nicest part of the year. But uh, now that we're in the fall, the weather's starting to cool down. It's uh, it's certainly possible to, especially in four-wheel drive mode uh, vehicles, It's for me, it's a lot more inviting to go out when you have awning and you have... Well, in the van's very comfortable, but even if you're in a Jeep or some sort of four-wheel drive overlanding vehicle, even if it's really hot out, you can accommodate the the temperature, the high temperatures easier than, um, you know, I've gone out when it's just been insanely hot on my motorcycle, and it's just not as pleasant, you know. Uh, that's a nice thing about, uh, one of the things I really enjoy about the van, one of the nice things about it is if it's, if it's really cold out, like not Arctic cold, but you know, unpleasantly cold, to be doing bicycle touring, bike packing, or motorcycle touring, we have a uh, warm van to be in. It's got a, a furnace, and a lot of people that are doing rooftop tents are, are incorporating the the little Covea butane uh, uh, heaters and the Mister Buddy heaters uh, to keep warm and um, having a fire to keep warm at night and uh, just generally being a bit more comfortable in these temperatures. But we we were uh, remiss in getting out very much this summer um, because of the high temperatures. I mean, it was just uh, crazy, crazy warm. So uh, routes, planned or spontaneous, wandering but not lost. Um, two ways to approach it. If you're planning a route, there are a number of ways that you can uh, you can do research on this you can uh, you know you can get uh, it can be by word of mouth from friends that tell you about a route that they've done and can outline it on a map for you or in a Delorme uh, gazetteer the Delorme map books are available for I think pretty much every state out there and they have very very fine detail and uh, it's it's fine scale on those maps, so that's one one uh, possibility, one resource for planning a route. Um, another another resource is online forums, um, overlandbound.com is one. Expedition Portal is another where routes get posted. Um, I recently found out about an extraordinary route that we did. We didn't do a lot of it, but I plan on doing some next spring when uh, when there's still quite a bit of snow at higher elevation. The route goes from, uh, it's in the northwestern corner of, um, of Oregon. It goes from the Columbia River Gorge and follows the coast range on logging roads. It's pretty much all dirt roads. And this person took the time to map this out. I'm trying to remember why I found the um, the route. I believe it was on Overland Bound. There was a GPX file for it. And I downloaded it. And it runs for uh, almost 800 miles, winding its way along the coast range, which gives you the opportunity to pop out close. It goes fairly close to the to the coast, to the beach, in a number of places. So you can take a break and head close to the beach and go out there and camp at state campground or whatever, and uh, and then come back to the route, and it goes all the way down to the California border. So that's something I found and downloaded into my Gaia app. It's my main source of navigation when we're overlanding in the, uh, in the van. And when I'm doing adventure touring slash overlanding by motorcycle. I use a, um, I use on my motorcycle, I have a Garmin, uh, 
Montana. It's a Montana 600. And, uh, and so I can download files into it. And then I also have Gaia as a backup on my waterproof iPhone that I carry in a RAM mount on my uh, motorcycle handlebars. So I've got two sources of navigation. If I'm doing a uh, another source that you can uh, you can utilize, that's that's a really excellent source. Whether you're motorcycling or four wheel drive overlanding, the Butler maps are astounding. They have wonderful routes that primarily go from border to border. And I've done the the uh, Washington route. Uh, I've done sections of the Idaho route and the uh, uh, the Oregon. They, there's another organization does the that does the Oregon backcountry route, um, but Butler has so not so as not to tread on their because they sell maps and in uh, you know they make money from the route. Butler Maps has developed their own version of the Oregon backcountry discovery route and uh, Butler Maps makes the maps for that they're very inexpensive and they're on they're not just on like this other organization has some great routes and there's a number of sections that go kind of all over the state so it's not a single route that goes border to border per se Um, but and they do have they do have maps but they're paper maps. The Butler maps are plastic maps, so they're much higher quality. And uh, the routes are, in a lot of ways, much better researched by Butler maps, uh, by backcountry discovery routes, um, the, the organization, which is a nonprofit. And uh, it's just a safer bet that you're not going to run into private land or roads that have been overgrown or closed or just impassable. So the uh, the Butler maps are an excellent resource. Um, they pretty much cover all of the western states, and they've even introduced routes in the um, New England area and the mid-Atlantic states. So for people that live on the east coast and are into overlanding and want to get out and explore, there's uh, there's some great roads in New England. I I used to motorcycle tour in Vermont and. Uh, love to explore the gravel roads that they had there it's just very very scenic great place to go this time of year in the fall the uh, we're about middle of October right now and the um, when I lived in Vermont that that was pretty much peak leaf season which is just psychedelic it's just mind-blowing the, the colors and the, the the trees the maples and so forth so that's a great resource to to uh, make use of. Uh, Another place that I have found interesting routes is just reading the overlanding magazines. Um, Mention will be made of of various places people have gone and explored. Uh, There's a lot of routes out there that are really well known that, uh, that have gotten so well known that it's next to impossible to even even do them, um, and one of the one of those that I'm referring to is, for example, the White Rim Trail in uh, in the, in the uh, Canyonlands in in Utah, uh, Canyonlands National Park. It starts basically. I've always started at um, one end or the other. I usually start uh, in Moab, and I take the Potash Road to access the uh, White Rim Trail. Another way is to go to Island in the Sky, and you drop down into uh, uh, Schaefer Trail, which is really spectacular. Um, since this is an audio podcast, I can't show you any pictures, but if you go online and you've never heard of the White Rim Trail, look at the, just Google White Rim Trail, Canyonlands, Schaefer Trail, and it will blow your mind. This thing traverses like, like sheer cliffs and uh, switchbacks down and it's uh, especially on a motorcycle it's really exciting to ride down the route itself is about 110 miles total and comes out at uh, it, it, it terminates at 
let's see, you get you you terminate over by um, what's called mineral mineral bottom, and then you climb out. Uh, I believe it's called Horse Thief Canyon to get back to the main highway to go back to Moab. So uh, it's it's technically pretty doable. Um, I back oh gosh, it must have been nineteen eighty. I want to say about eighty eight. I took a Toyota Tercel four wheel drive station wagon with snow tires on it with a couple of friends around the White Rim Trail. So it's considered a four wheel drive route. I made the whole way without damage any damaging anything, but uh, I did kind of throw the the uh, front al- front end alignment out a little bit when we came down Potato Bottom because I dropped off a ledgy section that basically kind of cracked the crappy Lexan skid plate on the underside of the engine and and kind of threw the uh, alignment out a little bit but I didn't seriously damage anything but it just goes to show you that uh, if you're careful if I'd been a little more careful I wouldn't have even suffered that damage but if you're careful it's amazing what you can take things over you just don't always want to count on it and from my point of view discretion is the better part of valor because if you're running into a situation that seems to be getting progressively more challenging for the vehicle you're driving or what you're comfortable doing good idea to turn around at that point if you're able to turn around you should probably turn around so the White Rim Trail used to be, I've done it, uh, let's see, I've done it by three times by four-wheel drive, various four-wheel drive vehicles, a Suzu Trooper, Suzuki Samurai, and this uh, uh, less than inspiring uh, Toyota Tercel wagon, which was which actually is pretty cool to be able to get it through there. Uh, but I also have done it by motorcycle, and I have also ridden it by tandem mountain bike with my son when he was about eight years old. And back then, the, uh, the, the chances of being able to do it, because you have to get a permit to do this, and it's gotten so popular with mountain bikers that you pretty much have to think at least a year ahead, maybe two years ahead, to reserve the requisite campsites along the way. And... To really do it justice, you don't want to do it in a day because the scenery is mind-blowingly spectacular. You you want to take your time, so you want to. Ideally, you want to get a campsite at a place called uh, Murphy's Hogback. So, just a little tip on that route. That is probably one of the more spectacular routes that you could actually find anywhere in this part of the globe, and. Uh, so magazine articles um, for people that are new to overlanding and want to gain confidence and have the budget for it. Uh, there are guided trips. Uh, a less expensive option would be to join a some sort of group, like uh, you know, up in um, up in Washington. There's a, what is it, the Northwest Overlanding club uh, they do outings um, there's a number of groups out there that does regular trips to various places and um, but you you do want to have uh, some spare air filters because it's, if you're in some place like eastern Oregon there's a lot of dust so one of the advantages of going solo or with just one other person is there's a lot less dust kicked up so Sometimes uh, snorkels are uh, are a good bet, uh, not just for water crossings, but because it pulls cleaner air out. And when you when you've got a line of twenty or thirty people in four wheel drive vehicles driving in the kind of moon dust that we have here in Central Oregon uh, and in also in Washington, it uh, it gets pretty dusty and it's hard to see anything because there's just clouds of dust. Um, so I mentioned the Delorme map books. Um, there's kind of an overview map of the whole state showing each each page, each section page reference. So you can kind of get an overview of where you're going. Um, using the Delorme maps is pretty easy. And uh, 
you can trace that out on uh, on the page and with a you know yellow highlighter then you can reference your your uh, uh, navigation instrumentation whatever that is and uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about about that but before I do I want to also mention I almost forgot so one of the best routes I ever did that kind of changed the face of adventure uh, touring motorcycling in 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 at least one way is establishing the first uh, first through route from border to border from the Canadian border to the Mexican border in 2001 I uh, I it, being a mountain biker and a bicycle tourist and I've done I at that point I had done a fair bit of off-road bicycle touring as well I was a member of the Adventure Cycling Association, which is a bicycle advocacy, touring advocacy group out of Missoula, Montana. And uh, they had in, I think it was in 96 or 97, they had published map maps, and because uh, there were several maps in the set to go from Roosevelt, Montana to Antelope Wells, New Mexico. It followed the Continental Divide, and it's called the Great Divide mountain bike route crosses the Continental Divide 29 times. It stays as close to the divide as possible. The idea was to create a Continental Divide Trail, Pacific Crest Trail, Appalachian Trail for mountain bikes, a way to go from border to border. And uh, I'd been wanting to do this since I heard about the route and just didn't have the time to take two months to do it because it's, it's basically a two-month well, now people have raced it and done it in a little over two weeks. That's not something I enjoy. I'm not, I'm a tourist. I'm not, I don't race mountain bikes anymore. I used to, but uh, it didn't hold any attraction for me. Uh, back then, there, it wasn't even a, uh, something that was being raced. So most people were doing it loaded touring, 35 miles a day. You know, it takes, uh, it's almost 3,000 miles, and it takes average, on average, two months plus to do it so I was also doing ad adventure I started adventure touring on my motorcycle in 97 so I'd been doing it for four years and I'd been exploring a lot of routes and doing a lot of riding various places and it occurred to me based on what I was reading about the route and ordering the maps and looking at the maps and the guidebook I thought well this is this is really non-technical a lot of people think oh mountain bike it's it's got to be tough and it's single track it's not there's like as it turned out there was only 60 miles of non-motorized uh, sections of the route and that was pretty much all right around Flathead Lake in Montana which I figured well it's easy enough to bypass that which we did on paved roads around uh, around Flathead Lake but uh, I uh, I ended up doing it with a fairly well-known motorcycle journalist Clement Salvadori, I called him up and said, uh, hey, I have this idea for doing a long-distance border-to-border adventure ride. And uh, we met 4th of July. Actually, it was 4th of July, Roosevelt, Montana. We rode eight and a half days all the way to the southern border uh, terminus at uh, Antelope Wells, a little out-of-the-way border crossing. It's uh, middle of nowhere. And, uh, yeah, we did it in total total day we took a couple of days off in Colorado to kind of regroup and see family and then came back but total number of days that we spent doing it was about eight I think it was eight and a half days border to border we were putting in really big miles like three to four hundred mile days which once again I don't recommend if you're going to do this thing uh, to do it like a Paris Dakar rally is exciting but it doesn't do justice to the route it's it's uh, what Clement said about the route when he wrote about it uh, in an article in Rider magazine in 2003, he said that it was by far the most beautiful uh, route that he had done in the in North America, and he'd been all over the world. So that says something. So, kind of outside of the box thinking can yield some interesting results. In that same regard, uh, Renge and I 
a few years ago took our dual sport motorcycles. Uh, we actually towed them, didn't want to ride the pavement all the way to Boise. Um, outside of Boise, there was a an adventure cycling association map that they had just come out with called the um, Idaho Hot Springs Tour. So it was about a 750-mile loop. Um, and there were some sections that you could do harder, more advanced sections of, which are similar to the to the Butler maps. There are sections on the Butler maps that unless you're riding a fairly light dual sport motorcycle or really have the uh, the balls to ride a big heavy BMW GS on these advanced routes, but they're they're probably not going to be ideal for taking a four wheel drive vehicle over a lot of them. And so similar similarly with the um, with the Idaho Hot Springs Tour, there are advanced uh, sections that really follow single track and uh, are much more technical. We, on the dual sport motorcycles, we stuck to the main route. Uh, it does go past like almost 40 hot springs. So if you like to soak, that's that's just spectacular. And so once again, there's a, there's a resource that's outside of the, uh, you know, the motor vehicle uh, idea of travel. And this is, these are routes that are designed for and mapped for bicyclists, but they're not, they're public roads. So anybody can go on them. Um, the only reason that I come across these things is, is I, I have a foot in the world of cycling and uh, as well as motorsports, uh, four wheel drive and motorcycle, both. So that yield, uh, those, that's, that's two routes that I've gotten that have been some of the best traveling I've ever done is through the, uh, Adventure Cycling Association maps. And I think I heard at one point um, that they were selling more of the guidebooks and maps to motorcyclists than, than for the Great Divide route. Um, as far as I know, I don't, I haven't really posted much of anything about the Idaho Hot Springs tour for motorcyclists or overlanders. So I don't know if people have really discovered it, but when I did the, the, um, Great Divide route in 2001, I didn't see any motorcyclists. When I, I bicycled, um, I used a mountain bike to bicycle the Colorado section of that route in, I think it was 07, and I saw more motorcyclists by far than running into other mountain bike tourists. So that's kind of interesting. So where to go from here? Where do I go and how do I get there? Um, the equipment is always fun to talk about. Um, there's a number of ways you can go to use uh, the resource of uh, navigation apps on your something as simple as your smartphone, whether it's an Android or a, or a Apple. You can download uh, my preferred app is Gaia. Um, you can do Gaia Premium and uh, that gives you more capability. Uh, I use it on my iPad because it's a large screen. I have it in a waterproof case which doesn't have to be but it, it, it does get dusty in our vehicle so it's nice to have it kind of protected. I have it in a RAM mount mounted between the driver passenger seat uh, facing me. Uh, so I can reference it while we're driving. Um, there are some uh, there are some other other apps out there like um, the Gaia is probably the best best resource that I found. There are some other navigation tools that uh, Trails Off Road Maps is another one that I'm looking at. Um, and then there's devices. There's um, standalone GPS. Uh, devices like the uh, there's the Garmin you know the Garmin and the Magellan are the two primary sources to go to for equipment and uh, like I had like I said I have the Garmin uh, Montana on my motorcycle um, the only Garmin that we use in the four-wheel drive vertical uh, vehicle <laughs> vehicle is the um, uh, inReach which is my emergency locator beacon 
and uh, I can text through that, and it can link to my cell phone, which is a lot easier to type texts out. Um, I don't primarily use it for navigation. It's there for primarily emergency use. But uh, uh, a really useful uh, tool is, and I've heard, you know, there's, there's various opinions about whether it's worth it or not for $700. The Garmin Overlander is specifically designed for those of us that are overlanding. And it has, it has some really excellent features that you don't get with an iPad. One thing is if you're using it in a vehicle where the sun is, is on the screen, the Overlander shows up better. You know, if you're using it on a motorcycle, for example, it's a little big for use on most motorcycles, in my opinion, but it would work. It's dust, dustproof, waterproof. Um, it has it's military standard. Um, it shows campsites, which I generally use another app called iOverlander. That has saved me an immense amount of money. It's actually free, and uh, it shows campsites uh, on your device. I've got it on my phone and my iPad. And uh, for example, when we were in Florida, we were in the Keys, and it's basically illegal to just, you know, they they really want you to stay in a $600 a night motel, or a two or $300 a night camp spot for you with your RV. So it's basically illegal to just camp overnight anywhere, anywhere. But we did find a place on Saddleback Key that was at the end of a road. Nobody came down there. There were a lot of no seams and mosquitoes, but there were no people. Nobody came around to throw us out. So it was really nice. It was peaceful, except for the screaming, screaming madness of the uh, bugs that we had to keep all the windows closed for. But uh, I hit, I used it recently at the coast when we were at the uh, Pacific Coast. Uh, also coming up from California, which is hard enough to find. Anything on the coast, the west coast at all, Oregon, California, Washington, in the summer, state campgrounds and a lot of commercial campgrounds are so full that you're, unless you plan ahead, and we don't travel that way. When we're on the road, it's like, hey, let's see where we'll stay tonight. Um, if you travel like I do you and you're just winging it, um, get iOverlander because it's it's a great go-to for free campsites. It'll direct you to paid campsites. Uh, it'll direct you to turnoffs off of uh, forest service roads or even off of 101. We spent one night at a overlook near Cape Perpetua that there was a sign there that said uh, no overnight parking or something like that, but the entire place was filled all night long with van life people. And nobody came by and threw us out. So I guess the cops figure, wow, I don't. That's a job I don't want. I don't want to have to knock on every one of these windows and send like forty people packing in the middle of the night. So, I Overlander, gotta have that. So the uh, the Garmin Overlander is has got. Um, it's going to tell you some things that the Gaia app might not tell you, like uh, public land boundaries. Uh, I think I actually does that. You can set it up for your vehicle size and weight. Um, for um, You can also set it up. Well, it, it'll show you like your, there's a, uh, a screen on there that'll show you your tilt angle for, for getting on really off camber stuff. It has a compass built in as altimeter and barometer and all of that stuff and similar to the overlander is uh, and it costs almost double and it has more capabilities it's a really cool device it's called uh, tread overland edition and it's available in different size five and a half inch eight inch ten inch and it will uh you can include a group ride radio, so I don't know what frequency it, ride, it runs on, but it's kind of like GMRS for communicating with other people that you might be ride, driving in a group with. Um, it uh, it does cost quite a bit. Um, it'll do uh, uh, 
turn by turn routing. It's also waterproof. It'll give you aerial views, uh, bird's eye satellite imagery. Um, you can link it to your phone. And it also, if you subscribe to the InReach uh, program for emergency, basically it's an emergency beacon that you can also satellite text through, which if you're, you're in the middle of nowhere and you're running running late uh, or you have a flat tire at the end of the day and somebody's expecting you further down the road, it's a really nice feature to have. So uh, another company that has produced a overlanding type uh, GPS system is Magellan. They do something called the TR7, Cam Trail and Street GPS Nav Navigator. It costs substantially less, and it has gotten substantially less attention in the overlanding uh, community. It just hasn't gotten good reviews. Uh, it's not to say that it wouldn't be a, a practical thing to have at a lot less money. Um, so I would recommend doing research. If you are looking for where to go and what to do, those are some of the things that you might want to utilize. Uh, if you've been overlanding for a while and you already know about some of these things, I hope uh, I was able to give you some ideas about some new resources. So, We've covered some of the things that I can think of that are the more concrete nuts and bolts, left brain aspects of navigation and, and choosing a route and, and finding a route and resources and some of the, some of the gear that you can use or the resources you can use that you can access to find where you want to go but haven't really talked very much about the the more internal like what what interests you you know what interests me where do I want to go what do I want to see what does that mean for for me I mean for for what I find fulfilling in terms of the value fulfillment that I want to find in my adventuring, in my traveling, in my overlanding. You know, one of the, the couple things that I used to focus on when I would do my motorcycle trips years ago, and I would decide where to go based on, I really love to visit hot springs. I love to soak. I think they're beautiful. That uh, it's just like the lifeblood of the earth and and just to to just soak that in literally that heat that comes from the earth from geothermal sources and there's a lot of them not so many on the east coast there's only one that i ever visited i think they were called it was called berkeley berkeley springs in uh i think it was in virginia or west virginia i rode to once but on the western side of the U.S., we have a lot of geothermal activity, and I loved going to, well, there's a lot here in Oregon I visited. Uh, I visited a number of them in, in Idaho. I mentioned that Idaho Hot Springs tour, which is a perfect venue, for, not only for motorcycle adventuring, but uh, uh, four-wheel drive vehicles. Even a bigger expedition camper can get through that that's another thing to consider is the size of your vehicle you know if you're driving some of these behemoth um, four-wheel drive unimog based vehicles um, the global what is it the gev the global expedition vehicle rigs that are really huge i mean you have a a um, substantial limitation in terms of the just the dimensions of the vehicle, the weight and the size. When we were in, um, we were in the Dragoon Mountains, uh, Ringe and I in our sportsmobile, 
and Patrick was in his four-wheel drive truck. We were camping in the Dragoons outside of Tucson. No, sorry, Tombstone, Tombstone, Arizona. Um, beautiful area, the Dragoons, and there was a couple that came through in one of the, I think it was the GEV Patagonia, and it wasn't their biggest rig, but we invited them if they wanted to go with us to do the Camino del Diablo, and having done it once before, I thought, you know, you probably can get through it without too much difficulty. They they were somewhat skeptical. They didn't go on that trip with us, but that's that's something else to consider is the is the size of your vehicle that I think I mentioned a little bit before. Um, it really kind of comes down to what your once again what your aesthetics are, what your values are, what you want to see. Do you like to be near water? Uh, I like to hot spring soak. Um, I also have been known in the past I would ride a thousand miles to uh, Kansas City from Colorado, uh, Kansas City, Missouri for a good barbecue for one of my favorite barbecue places. So you might select food, you might be interested in old mines, uh, might be interested in uh, ghost towns. So figure out what you want to do. You know, a lot of people that uh, that get the Sprinter vans, I see it's almost ubiquitous that, you know, probably 70% of the four-wheel drive sprinter van uh, folks driving those things have a couple of you know super expensive full suspension mountain bikes on the back so I think a lot of those people buy this vehicle so that they can get to places where that it might be remote long long trip on maybe some gravel roads or four-wheel drive roads to where they can get on their mountain bike and ride where they aren't going to take their vehicle any further or access single track, uh, hunting, fishing. Um, another thing that I, I do on occasion, since I'm a ham radio operator, and we'll do another episode at some point uh, around communication for overlanding. And uh, I have used my ham radio license to bring really portable equipment that I can raise uh, the antenna, I can raise on a carbon fiber uh, telescoping mast and uh, get that antenna antenna up higher. And I have, when I've been at places like Quartzite, for example, I've talked to uh, talked to one guy as far away as Magadan, Russia, on the Road of Bones, and uh, reached somebody in Argentina and down in Patagonia talk to guys in Japan. This is from uh, being in the quartzite area, dry camping out there, having my portable rig going. So, you know, a lot of people like photography and photography you can do along the ways, no special needs usually uh, around that because there's a lot of beautiful scenery. That's one of the reasons we go out there is to connect to that scenery but you may have some specific ideas for your the pictures you want to capture. Um, and it also brings to mind why we're going out there. You know, what, uh, what, does, that, what does that mean on a, on a more intrinsic level, level beyond the superficial joy of just driving and, uh, and seeing beautiful scenery? It's... For me, it's it's connecting to that which is which is connected to the thing that creates us all. The, that that being in nature and experiencing something that is larger than myself. It's it's almost like going to church. I'm not a real church person, but I have always had a deep interest in nature of that which has created the world, whether you want to just call it the intelligence of nature uh, or something something deeper than that, something that goes maybe even beyond our comprehension. There's, there's, a, there's something out there that we reach for when we're traveling, walking, cycling, sailing, paddling it's 
getting away from the artifice, the artificial nature of the human creation that's more that's more complex in a lot of ways that doesn't lead one to depth, doesn't lead one to a more internal introspection into what we are and what we what we feel when we're in the world in that natural world we feel a deeper depth a deeper connection with that which sustains us the artificial world sustains us in artificial ways but the natural world sustains us in in ways that are more elemental and to be out there and experiencing life in a simpler way where we get to forget about our our mortgage, our rent, our bills, and just be and focus on I, I mean I I love just the the act of cooking out there. It takes on different meaning, the simplicity of it. Uh, the order that one has, at least I do maybe maybe uh, some people don't aren't as concerned about keeping their their all of their gear in such an ordered fashion but when things are in a tight space when you have uh, minimal amounts of places to keep things it it kind of helps me become more focused in my mind as to everything going in its place and having everything i need and nothing I don't and that's a big part of why I go out and I think that if you can hold that sense of mindfulness when you go out about what's this carrying me to what does this mean on a on a more deep level of who I am and where do I fit in the world so when you come back to that artificial world that we live in, unless you're lucky enough to be on a world expedition where you're just doing it day after day, month after month, year after year, but a lot of us have the the commitments that we have to come back to, to that artificial world. And when we do come back, we come back with our batteries renewed, our energy is recharged and it allows us to go forth into that world and maybe be more effective or at least appreciate our life within that context of that artifice so thanks for joining us again on another episode of wheel adventures and We look forward to talking to you next time.